Nothing like worshiping like that in the midst of all the craziness that we seem to deal with week in and week out in the world, right? Just something about the worship and the singing that anchors the soul, I think, in ways that um, I know I forget that I need, and then I sing like that, and then I remember I need it again. So uh, it's so fun to sing with you this morning. Uh, fun to be here. Um, over the top, wherever Brinkman is. Over the top, huh, uh, Brinkman? <laughs> I will say, it was one of the delightful parts of the marriage conference that we were doing, is that Hallie, too often, is in the background, and uh, and when she was teaching, and she's just such an amazing teacher, people would come up in between the different sessions, and they would just be, like, starry-eyed as they sat and talked with her, and be like, wow, and I'm sort of always standing over to the side, and, and as they're raving about her, suddenly they look at me for a second and say, oh, and you're good, too. It was like this patronizing uh, little pat on the back that I certainly enjoyed. It was uh, really fun to be there. On the weekend, I don't normally do this, but I see my parents are up there in the upper left, uh, Maury Linda Kapsner, and so shout out to you. I know that you passed 52 years of marital bliss uh, here in the last couple of weeks, so... <laughs> So appreciative of the example that you've set, uh, and I know it's not always easy to, to walk it out, so I'm grateful for that, and also grateful to be here. You know how much I enjoy being with Kevin. I will admit that I was a bit staggered this morning that the assigned topic of the morning was not something along the lines of predestination or the striking down of Ananias and Sapphira, or perhaps polygamy in the Old Testament, or some other similarly simple topic he usually gives me before he bails out of town like that. It's an interesting series, good series. You know I love partnering with Kevin. He's a person, longtime friend, a person that I trust, uh, a person that uh, that I go to when I need wisdom and some counsel and really enjoy the time and, of course, love being here as part of the church in which I've grown up. And this series, too, as I've been following along, whether live streaming or sharing the notes with Kevin or talking about some of these topics of God's best for us, it has been, at least for me, a very interesting series. And we pick up our study this morning in the third chapter of the book of of Colossians, and we're going to specifically only just hone in on the first four verses of Colossians this morning. It's all that we'll have time for, and I'll read them in just a second. But before I do, let's start with sort of a question that will drive the conversation this morning. It's a question that sounds something like this. Be what do we, you or me, what do we expect relative to God's best for us relative to walking out life in this world. What do you, what do me, what do we expect relative to God's best for us as we walk out life in this world? What I'd suggest is that Colossians 3, especially those first four verses, really does provide an answer to that question. And so let's put that up there now, Sarah. We'll read it. And when I first read it this week, I confess that I didn't really know what it meant. It was one of those passages that sounded great, but I didn't have any idea what was actually underneath or behind this passage. It says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, sealed at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And again, it's one of those passages, I don't know how the text goes for you, but for me, when I first looked at it, again, I thought, this sounds great, but I don't really have any idea what it's saying. What does it mean to die when I'm still alive? What does it mean to have my life hidden with Christ in God? What does it mean that we would appear with him in glory? All of these 
kinds of topics and began digging into it. And I think we'll find some interesting stuff in there, including the answer to the question, what would you or me, what would we expect relative to God's best for us as we walk out life in this world? And I think what we'll find is that within this passage of Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, is a very different answer than the answer that we might think that might be running roughshod in our culture and in many versions of Christianity. Today, it's a different invitation that we'll see in Colossians 3. So with that, let's pray as we turn our mind to the word and into what God's best is for us. God, in a time in a space when, of course, we always need to hear your voice increasingly in the collision of voices seeming to be all around us all week. We ask for your voice to speak true as your shepherd, as the shepherd of us this morning. That we would get a little glimpse of the kind of life um, you have for us. And in that, that we would continue to worship and sing and gather and pray and shine your light in this world. Ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. I think over the last 30 or so years, if you follow Christianity in America at all, you would recognize that there seems to be a version of Christianity that has emerged and has made a significant impact on our culture relative to what we would consider to be our best life. Turn the TV on on a Sunday morning, you might see a stadium filled with tens of thousands of people or beautiful glass cathedrals all answering this question about God's best life for us. What you'd see in all these different versions is the answer to that question would be something like this. Here is God's best for us. God desires to pour out the fullness of his blessings upon you. You ever hear something like that? God desires to pour the fullness of his blessings Upon you, And those blessings, if you listen carefully to what they might be, typically represent something within the financial or the material or the relational world. Uh, you would have psychological or emotional health. You'd have strong and whole relationships. You'd have fulfillment of big dreams, a dream big because it's a big God we serve. You would have all of the wealth that you need. And the only thing really standing in the way of God's best for us defined by those blessings is the quality of your faith and the willingness to persevere and to endure when it doesn't seem that God has his best ready for you right now. So just wait and God will certainly pour those things out for you. It's a version of the faith known as the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel, and it really has attracted millions to follow in today's day and age. Faith will activate his blessings in the ways that we're looking for. Example of some of the statements and ideas that I read this week, this one first came from a pastor who said this as part of God's best. I'm fully convinced, he wrote, that I would die saying that this is so. That is the plan of our Father God in his great love and in his great mercy that, and get this, that no believer should ever be sick. So if you're sniffling this morning, stop. (laughs) That no believer should ever be sick, that every believer should live his or her full lifespan down here on this earth, and that every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. And then he went on to say this, I haven't had a headache in 45 years. And I thought, well, I haven't had leprosy in 45 years either. (laughs) Sign from God that I'm blessed. (laughs) 
There's another statement from another pastor uh, in the movement went something like this. You know, it's a matter of your faith. You got $1 faith and you ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according to his will, if he can work it out in his busy schedule, he said, the pastor said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. And then he went on to say this, now, I may want a Rolls Royce and don't have but a bicycle faith. Guess what I'm going to get? A bicycle. (laughs) I apparently have a Honda Accord faith. (laughs) Currently completely destroyed by a deer that Hallie hit this past week, so, whew. And I'm sniffling. <laughs> mm. <laughs> one last one. You must realize that it's God's will for you to prosper. That it is all available to you. And frankly, it would be stupid of you to not partake in it. Statements like this, millions of people, tens of thousands in stadiums, glass cathedrals, I would answer the question, what we can expect relative to God's best for us in this world would be some form of financial material, relational, or physical prosperity in the way that we would define it. Of course, those are pretty blatant examples, but I think uh, as I kind of walk out life each week at places like Northwestern and Bethel, and even in my own life, and I think about what I say relative to different events in the life, I think that this sort of bleeds in in very subtle ways as well. Because how do we tend to use the word blessed, for example? Everything about that? When, when are we blessed? I'm blessed when I get that job. I'm blessed when I have good health. I've been blessed when maybe we got pregnant. Hashtag blessed is raging around Twitter right now, and it's always around the good things. Hallie didn't go on Twitter and say, hashtag blessed, I drilled the deer. (laughs) Sense in which God's favor is upon us when we are blessed. And so there's this little subtle thing that isn't the same maybe overt as the glass cathedral, but it makes its way into my language each week about when I am blessed and it's a perception that God has poured out his favor upon me with things that I like. Another interesting example is a subtle version of the prosperity gospel is the fact that the most popular verse from the book of Jeremiah, anybody want to take a guess? You got it. Jeremiah 29.11, this is a verse that all of my students tend to know, all coming from churches just like ours, and they come out and they know one verse in Jeremiah, one, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to what? To prosper you. Young people, of course, I think all of us in our confusion and worry about the future when things have gone not according to our plan, when things are difficult for them, it often comes in the context of a breakup of a relationship. Well, this person wasn't God's best for me then, but God still has a plan and will prosper me. Just need to stay patient, have the right amount of faith, activate his blessings. He will pour them out in this transactional relationship where God is the great cosmic vending machine in the sky and I put my quarter of faith in and press double A and get the relationship that I want or the job that I need for the financial blessing that I've been waiting for. It's interesting. It's pretty easy to reject, I think, the Rolls-Royce example. But I find day in and day out, week in and week out, I assume that God's best for me in this life has something to do with hashtag blessed. We just need to wait patiently and have faith. God will eventually come through. Except what if he doesn't? What if we are not healed? 
What if we don't get that job? What if we struggle with finances for a lifetime? What if the child turns away? What if the spouse never comes back? Does that mean that God is not a faithful God? Does that mean maybe his plans are thwarted? And I think for all of us in those moments, it's what gives rise to a very understandable doubt that begins to creep in. And some of the things that we begin to think, at least I begin to think, is maybe God is not all-powerful after all, or maybe God simply doesn't care. Because if he did, this never would have happened. And certainly none of this feels like my, my best life. It's not what I signed up for. I think it was about 20 or 25 years ago, I remember that Hallie and I were friends with a family in another church, and they were going to another church, and they had two kids that were in fourth grade and in first grade, and during that time, got the very, very difficult diagnosis where the mother had cancer. Brutal, obviously, on every level. Counseled in the prosperity gospel to not acknowledge it, just pray. Trust that God will heal. That's God's best for you. And the mom died. Resulting perception is either God didn't care or God was not powerful enough or that the husband and the kids simply didn't have enough faith. Not good options anywhere, any place in that. And I think we're left so often when our best life is now, according to the Rolls Royce or the hashtag blessed, or the troubling implications where we begin to question something about the care or the power or the intentionality of God. All of which makes me wonder, I wonder if instead of casting all of this upon God, maybe it's a case of mistaken expectations relative to this life. Maybe it's not God that needs to be rejected. Maybe it is our notions of blessing and prosperity and the good life that could be reconceived or perhaps realigned just a bit as we think about life in this world. Because I wonder if Colossians 3 might answer the question differently than hashtag blessed. You know, I'll read it again in a moment from a different translation that I think will pull out some of the beautiful invitation of that passage. But just looking at those words again, blessed and prosperity, when I talk about the need to maybe reconceive of those sorts of things, the way we use blessed or prosper in our current sort of linguistics is very different than the way it's used in the biblical text. Have you ever read the Beatitudes of Jesus, for example? Where he used the word bless over and over and over again, and he says weird things. In the Sermon on the Mount, about his hashtag blessed, he says something like this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that are persecuted for their faith. Again, those sorts of things don't trend. I don't, I wonder what he means by blessed or the word prosper in the Old Testament in that Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah 29, 11. The word prosper there isn't the idea of a financial, material, or health kind of prospering. The word prosper is literally the Hebrew word shalom. And it simply means wholeness or peace with God. That everything is finally at rest. It's wholeness and peace with God. And in that Jeremiah 29 passage, it's being told and promised to the Israelites while they're in the midst of a brutal exile to the Assyrian people. And God says, in the midst of all of this exile, we certainly are not experiencing your best life now. Here's the promise I make. I have plans to prosper you 
It doesn't feel like wholeness in your life right now. And of course, the Israelites back at that time assumed that the prospering would have meant a return to the power and wealth of the kingdom of David. But they never got that. That mean that God failed them? That God was not faithful? Of course not. God came and brought wholeness and shalom and peace in the person of Jesus Christ. And just as many missed it then, I wonder if many of us miss it now. Including me. Just in the simple way that I use the word blessed. Maybe our notions of our best life could be Reconceived, We see some things here in the Colossians passage that would be very helpful. And I think the fundamental shift that I think we can bite us all into this morning is the idea is both bad news, but really, really good news. And here's the fundamental shift is that our best life is not meant to happen in this life. Ever. Our best life is waiting for the world to come. Our best life, our real life is currently hidden with Christ and God. Read this from... Colossians 3, different translation now, New Living Translation, pulls some of this out a little bit more. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of this earth, for you died to this life. Your real life, I would say your best life, is right now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, It's then that you will share in his glory. What Paul is teaching and what underpins so much of his language in this passage at this point is that we live in a world that is broken and we live in a world where the environment is simply governed by sin and death. It is a world that is untethered and separated from God. And so all the roads of a broken and failing world are going to be roads that will end. They will fail. They will perish. We can give our life to work believing that our best life is just around that next corner of success. If we can just get to that point, we're finally going to experience shalom. Has anybody ever really experienced shalom when you got to that next corner of success? Feels good for like a day, right? Quick steak dinner. Yes! All of life is going to be great. And then I wake up the next morning. (laughs) Give our lives to money. We know that finances cannot be taken with us. We can give our lives to make a name for ourselves and a legacy to leave behind all important things. But even the most famous names are now the names of history that we study. And I think we understandably pursue a healthy life. I would like to live for a while. (laughs) I have been leprosy free, as I said, for 48 years now. Hashtag blessed. But when my life fails, because my understanding is it's pretty likely that it it will, um, does that mean that God wasn't faithful then in those moments? It's funny how death is the great revealer of the illusion of the prosperity gospel. But maybe it just means that my life, my real life, in fact, my best life, is currently hidden with Christ in God, waiting to be revealed. It's, in fact, the entire witness of the New Testament. This is the good news of the gospel. That in the midst of a broken and failing world, that there is a life available to us in the midst of that to help us walk through as strangers in a strange land, as aliens in a foreign place. So says the text, there is a life available. Jesus said, here's why I've come. John 10.10. Anybody know the verse? I've come that you would have life and have it abundantly. 
The prosperity gospel would suggest that the abundant life is all of the material wealth and blessings and health and those sorts of things. But that funny little word life there in what Jesus is saying in John 10.10 is a word that is used 120 some odd times in the New Testament. It is the primary theme of the New Testament. And the word life there in the original language of the Greek is the word zoe, and it simply means this. It's the kind of life that God enjoys. I've come that you would have the kind of life that my very Father in heaven enjoys and that you would have it abundantly. Overflowing through who you are. What kind of life does the Father have? Well, I think we get glimpses of it then all throughout the text. It manifests itself, doesn't it? In in, in the ways in which we somehow have a weird kind of hope in the midst of grief. I remember having some dear friends pass away over the last 12 to 18 months. And in all of that were all of the tears that should be there when those things happen. And in all of that, there was a weird sense of hope. Something was present or peace that tends to transcend even all the hardest of circumstances. You ever been in the room with somebody or you yourself? You got the difficult diagnosis, right? Or the job failed. And somehow there was a little bit of shalom in the midst of all of the pain. That's a little taste of the life of God that he promises. It's hidden right now. We don't get to see much of it. It's hidden with Christ and God waiting to be revealed. It happens in the wonder of watching a little robin hop by. I love watching young kids. They're sort of the ones that get the kingdom, right? You ever watch a young child come down the stairs with sort of the twinkly-eyed hope of life and everything is filled with wonder, you know, and people, and I've said this before, and I hate it when people, well, I dislike it, when people ask the question, uh, Captain, how's your walk? How's your walk, Capsner? <laughs> um, you know, sort of answer that question now and not by when is the last time I had a quiet time by a pool of liquid as the sun was rising at five in the morning. It's important. But my walk so often is defined by did I, did I get a little sense of wonder today? A little bit of God's creation. Did it, did it hit me like it might hit a little child waking up in the morning and saying, God, wow, what could be next? sense of wonder. God's life is a faithfulness in the times of pain. It is a kindness to those in need. It is a gentleness to our children. And it's a love that even desires wholeness, not just for our friends. It desires wholeness even for our enemies. And it manifests itself in this world. And at the end of it all, this life that God enjoys, that animates all of who God is, will pull us through the dark waters of death and into our real life. For even though we die, yet we will live. Paul calls this kind of life, he actually uses the language of a deposit. We get a deposit of our future inheritance of the spirit in the present. We get to taste a little bit of the life that is waiting to be revealed. We get to taste a little bit of the wholeness of the peace of the certainty in the midst of the trouble. Our best life now is not when circumstances finally dictate that things are good. Our best life now is that God is present in the midst of circumstances that aren't always very good that somehow there's a shalom in the midst of it. There is peace and absence. The disciple John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children right now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So do not set your hearts on things of this world, says Paul in Colossians. Die to this world. They all fail. But know that your hidden life, your life with God and your life with Christ and God is waiting to be revealed for that time when all things will be set right. And so here is our best life. Now it's a deposit 
waiting for this sort of thing, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will then wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, flowing from crystal, from the throne of God and from the Lamb. No longer will there be any curse. There will be no more night. No more need of lamp or light, for the Lord God will give them light. And here's our best life. And they will reign forever and ever and ever. It's a hidden life now. We don't get to taste of that life. Maybe when things aren't going right in this world, it isn't because God is unfaithful or because God is not powerful. Maybe our expectations need to be realigned in a broken world. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about the life that's waiting to be revealed. You probably know this passage. He says, it's a serious thing, you know, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may be one day a creature, which if you saw him or her now, you would be strongly tempted to worship them. A creature of such beauty on the other side. I think about Hallie's and my, one of our main mentors, her name was Lois Bauer. She was about this tall. Um, when we were getting married, she, uh, she stepped out of her front door of her house and she looked at us in the eye. I think at that time she was already about 154 years old. And, uh, and she said, you will never, ever, 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 ever get divorced. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. I think you're going to eat me if I do. <laughs> but this is a woman who, when, from all external appearance, says there is not much to see. And I'll never forget going into her hospital room in the last few days of her life, a woman who had been faithful to God for her whole life, and at this point broken entirely by osteoporosis, wizened to the point uh, barely could recognize her, tubes coming from every possible place. And as Hallie and I sat in that room that day with her in her last few days, you could see a beauty and a wonder just waiting to escape. You could see it. She was dying and God was faithful right there, bringing shalom and peace in the midst of the absence of that moment. The point of this morning is that into the face of the prosperity gospel of our culture, that the promises and the declarations of God are simply this. Your best life is not ever going to happen in this world. It's waiting for the life to come. Your life is now hid with Christ in God. And when it's all revealed, it's going to be a place of glory and wonder and hope and beauty. But in this world, you can expect just the opposite. So says the biblical text. (laughs) No matter how long we can maintain the illusory bubble, and for some of us, many of us can maintain it for a very long time, can't we? An illusory bubble of peace and hope and pride. Everything's fine. Everything's good. And then all of a sudden, you get the phone call, and it's not good because of the car crash. Or you suddenly are like, I wonder what this thing is right here. And suddenly it's not good, and the illusory bubble pops. It's interesting, when we read the words of Jesus, he says, you know, in this world you will suffer, and you will not have a place to lie your head. There won't be a place for that kind of rest. 
James says something weird. He says, when you have a trial or tribulation, guess what? Consider it pure joy. (laughs) I'm like, I got to pray my way out of this. And James says, no, there's wisdom that can come at the end of that. An ability to see as God sees. It's a hard word. It's an invitational word. Uh, I know for me, as I thought about my own life this week relative to it, uh, I don't know about you, but I so often live a Jekyll and Hyde kind of life. I really, truly, deeply, theologically and intellectually believe these things that I'm saying this morning. I really absolutely believe that this world is groaning for its release. I really believe that this world is in the authority of the principalities of this present darkness, so says the text. I really believe we are strangers in a strange land. I don't need to be a believer even to see some of that with the wildfires that are raging all over the West Coast right now, with the shootings that we see that are so horrific, with the famine, with the outbreaks of Ebola that have been unparalleled in human history, with a mysterious polo-like illness that seems to be moving into some of our children in this country. There's brutal dictators, perpetual violence, language of hatred and polarization coming out of the leaders of our free world from ecological addictions, gender confusion, and blurring. I caught 10 minutes of a daily talk show the other day, and a woman stood up because it was time to ask the host a question. And of course, our daily talk show hosts are those purveyors of wisdom in our culture. And so, (laughs) super trustworthy, not about ratings at all. And asked the host a question, said, so what should I do? Because here's my situation. I went in my husband's computer the other day, and I looked at his browser history. And of course, found what you would expect to find in that situation with her question of the confusion. Some of the sites that her husband is going to were not uh, good. But she said, you know, I'm not concerned that he's going to all of these sites. I'm concerned that he continues to visit one site over and over again. And I don't want him to fall in love with just one person. So it's good. I mean, it's fine as long as, you know, if we're going to browse, just make sure it's lots of different sites is what the advice of the host was. And everybody applauded. I don't even have to be a believer to see that things are broken. I can see it in my Jekyll and Hyde kind of life. And yet, when I go to do my day, I'm doing my day as if I can squeeze my best life. Now, out of all of this, (laughs) I live in the illusion that my soul will finally be at rest when I get the right job or have the right prestige or the right ministry opportunity or lose 20 pounds, which is a promise that'll never happen. Or if I just eat a bunch of antioxidants, I will be great. (laughs) And many, many hours of my day are spent with my eyes right here, right here, right here, right here, all day long. And I think they're going to bring me peace. It's kind of silly. Why would I look at a broken clock assuming it can give me the right time? Why would I jump in a car with no engine thinking it can get me to the right place, but I do it all day long? And I sort of think somewhere that if I'm patient enough, God will bless me in that way with those things that I want. It is such an alluring and deceitful illusion, is it not? If we had more time, we would talk about throughout the church and history when the church and the values of a culture begin to blend together. It's it's something called syncretism where the church begins to look like the culture and it kind of doesn't even know it and it begins to say theological things that are more representative of the culture. You can see it all throughout history. But we in our culture believe we have a God-given right to the pursuit of happiness as defined by us. At last check, I looked at the text. I couldn't find anywhere in the text that we have a God-given right for the pursuit of happiness. 
And that all day long, we are trying to be empowered to pursue happiness, to squeeze it out of a world that is not able to give it. You know, if I, it's going to sound weird, but if I was Satan, and I'm glad I'm not, but if I was, there'd be a few things that would be true about me. First, I'd be totally driven to steal, kill, and destroy all of God's beautiful life. John 10.10, 10, the passage that I just quoted a little bit ago, starts with, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you would have life, God's kind of life, overflowing within you. So, first, I would be totally driven to steal, kill, and destroy. Second, I would be the father of all lies, meaning that everything around me would be swirling with a bit of confusion, really hard to sort through and to process. And third, what I would know is that I would pretend that I could give all of what you want to you if you just step my direction as the angel of light. And so the passage in Matthew, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and all of their splendor. All this I will give to you, Satan said, if you simply bow down and worship me. That would be the best life now, wouldn't it? Rule the whole world. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So to the people following God, your best life now, Colossians 3 says, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. Die to the things of this world. Do life in this world, but do it with your eyes lifted towards the heavens, knowing that our true beauty and wonder and all of what we hope for and long for and all of what we pursue that can't be satisfied in this world, someday it will be satisfied. Someday there will be a shalom. Someday there will be a peace. And it's on us to be filled with the life of God in this world so that we can shine a light, a different kind of light into the world to be filled with God's kind of life. Hallie's and my, our main circle of friends that we've been doing life with for many years have um, experienced a lot of loss in those circles of friends. Many, many family members have died in the circle of friends over the past probably three or four weeks. It's just been awful. One after another. The bubble has popped And I think if all of us could have a second up here in this little lectern thing, we could all talk about how the bubble has popped in different ways in our lives. Best life is not just around the corner in this life, even as circumstances shift and change. There is a best life to come. God does sustain us in this life. We are not alone. And that is why Paul writes these beautiful words in 2 Corinthians about what it means to walk out life in this world. It says that, yeah, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. Not in despair, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So believers and church and people following Jesus in this world, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. God really is for us. Just maybe not always in the ways that we think. But there is only one kingdom that is eternal. There is only one kingdom that will remain. There's only one kingdom that always has been and forever will be. And when this world wraps up like a scroll, guess which kingdom is going to be remaining? It's the kingdom of our Lord 
and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our lives are currently hid with him, but they will be revealed in glory. And we will celebrate together at that wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb. Get a taste of it now, and we'll have the full shalom then.